This episode is brought to you by FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. FX's The Veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret, and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX's The Veil, now streaming, only on Hulu. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and... 6-1 since that matters. And what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Welcome to the New Books Network. Well, good morning. and It's so nice to see you. And I'm so happy to introduce you as my very special guest. And my guest is Dr. Richard Wood. Dr. Wood is a clinical psychologist with 48 years of practice experience, undertaking psychoanalytically oriented work with his patients. He received his bachelor's degree from Cornell University and his PhD from Wayne State University. He spent the first eight years of his career at Mount Sinai Hospital in Toronto in what was a very rich psychoanalytic environment. He served as an associate professor in the Department of Behavioral Science at the University of Toronto's Medical School and was one of the six founding members of the Canadian Association of Psychologists in Disability Assessment. He also was engaged with the Ontario Psychological Association for over a 10-year course, culminating with the presidency in 1989. He is also a member of the American Psychoanalytic Association, as well as the author of the book we'll be talking about today, A Study in Malignant Narcissism, Personal and Professional Insights. Welcome, Richard. So Thank let's you. Begin. That was a lovely. That was a lovely introduction. Thank you. Great. Well, you're welcome. Let's begin discussing your very interesting and thought-provoking book. So I'll, I'll begin with this first question that I I gave a lot of thought to: the decision to self-disclose aspects of one's life that has been filled with traumatic experiences is a major decision for most therapists. Can you tell our listeners how and why you arrived at your decision to do this? Sure. Um, as, I, as I looked at some of the uh, descriptions of, of narcissism and malignant narcissism, I felt that there was, um, there was a relative absence of clinical material that uh, adequately described 
what the experience of growing up in a narcissistic surround really is like. And I, and I also had the sense that malignant narcissism is such an important topic uh, because it seems to inform and define so many of the people that assume um, leadership positions, leadership that um, has led to seemingly endless human calamities uh, over the course of human history. So it felt like I had a... Um, I had a window into understanding this phenomenon that other people might not have because of my my personal experience and my intimate acquaintance with my father's dynamics and my own dynamics. It felt like I had a responsibility to share the material. Um, it was a scary thing to do. I mean, it absolutely was a very scary thing to do. Um, but it it felt like it was it was important enough that the risk needed to be taken. And I'd hoped in the process that I was going to deepen and extend the conversation about malignant narcissism. Uh, what was the writing process like, as I was saying, given that you were in, engaging in such an extensive uh, self-disclosure? The writing process was uh, was really interesting. I knew when I, when I got into the writing, I knew that it was going to occasion um, a lot of re-traumatization. And it did, and that made the writing process that made the writing process hard, if not daunting, to get through. But as I moved through it, I found that I was able to extend a lot of the ideas that I'd already put together and refine them in a way that was was really helpful, and it helped set the stage for greater compassion uh, for my father and even greater compassion for myself. But then. Interestingly, as I, as I started to articulate what I thought were the important dynamics of malignant narcissism, and I felt like I was doing, for me, a reasonably good job of it, and I could anticipate this was going to happen, I watched this happening with my patients, um, the, the PTSD fantasies started. I imagined that I was going to be attacked or undercut um, in one way or another. And the fantasies were were really tenacious, um, really difficult to manage. Uh, it was a struggle to get through them, and I I credit my wife Mary for helping me get through a lot of this stuff. This stuff. So if I had a particularly successful day writing, we knew I wasn't going to sleep that night. But that that's part of that's part of the experience of growing up in um, a really damaging narcissistic surround you learn to become really frightened to use your voice. And when you start to use it and speak with authority and speak effectively, you get really scared. And of course, that's what happened to me. But was it worth it? I mean, absolutely, yes. Okay, well, well, thank you. That's, that's very insightful. So uh, to shift gears a little bit, but maybe it's more to continue along the same path. Putting the mythological story of Narcissus aside, I believe a physician in the late 1800s initially used the term narcissism to describe pathological self-absorption. And of course, Freud considered narcissism to be a normal stage of development in uh, an early early childhood, but a disorder after adolescence. Uh, also, I, I've been affiliated with the Washington School of Psychiatry for a number of years, and uh, Eric Fromm was also 
involved way back when. And so I've read some of the things he's written. Um, I, I believe he started talking about the difference between narcissism and malignant narcissism in his 1964 book, The Heart of Man. In this context, I'm wondering if you can explain why it is important to distinguish narcissism or having a narcissistic personality disorder from malignant narcissism. Sure. Um, I'll do my best. Um, first of all, I love Fromm. I mean, I, we've talked about him before. I, I think he was um, quite brilliant and extraordinarily brave in laying out some of the, in laying out the dynamics of malignant narcissism that he saw. I think, I think malignant narcissism is a particularly toxic form of narcissism that often expresses itself in pathological leadership, pathological leadership that sets the stage for um, terrible human devastation. The characteristics that I would say off the top of my head that distinguish malignant narcissism from other forms of narcissism are almost a complete and utter absence of empathy, an absence of connection uh, and, and love in the lives of these people, um, an investment in cruelty as a way of generating a sense of aliveness and engagement that isn't possible for them because they're not connected to others, um, a terrible kind of solipsism that arises. People are living in a world of their own creation, devoid of other people who might help them um, make better decisions that would benefit the well-being of the, of the governed, of the people that the malignant narcissistic leader is looking after. So he doesn't have recourse to other people's advice. He's in He's increasingly, as he moves throughout his lifetime, relegated to depending upon himself, his own sources of expertise. He's his own ultimate, he's his own ultimate expert. And of course, we saw this, this particular manifestation in spades in Donald Trump, as you you pointed out in your book as well. Um, and I think there are a couple of other things I would mention um, that that make malignant narcissism particularly concerning and separated from the rest of narcissism. Um, there is unyielding grandiosity and omnipotence that one can't challenge, one can't move through. Side by side, extraordinary mistrust um, and an absence of insight. These people can't, for the most part, tolerate insight. Um, as, as Kernberg has pointed out, if you've worked with someone like this, it's a really, it can be a really bruising experience. It's, I mean, for me, I had success with one patient um, who was willing to breach his mistrust and let me in and establish a relationship and he was willing to tolerate depression. But the other people that I worked with, um, you it was it was really hard going. You couldn't you couldn't breach the mistrust. You couldn't establish a relationship, and you were subject to repeated uh, contempt, withdrawal, threat, diminishment. It was really really hard going. And Kernberg's quite right about that. And at times you can find yourself subject to um, to legal threat as well. So it's a it's it's a tough road to hoe. All of which is to say that these people don't 
form networks of connection with other people, people who could help them manage the problems that they are having and the problems that they're creating better. Um, I think that's what we're seeing in Putin. He's essentially living in a solipsistic world, a world of his own making. And it's very hard for him then to turn to other people, to other resources who could help him make better decisions. Um, Gardner made the comment that there's about as much relationship between um, narcissistic personality disorder and malignant narcissism as there is between a benign and a malignant tumor. It's the dramatic image, but it, it, it certainly makes the point. Well, that is a very good point. Uh, I have other terms that I want to ask you about, but, but that really crystallizes it. I think, narcissism versus malignant narcissism. However, as you know, there are people who have used other terms. So is there a difference between malignant narcissism, pathological narcissism, and what Daniel Shaw, and I believe you've uh, quoted him uh, several times in your book, uh, what he called traumatizing narcissism? Sure. Okay. Um Malignant narcissism, pathological narcissism, and um, traumatizing narcissism are all different terms that have been applied to essentially the same constellation of defining psychodynamics. Um, pathological narcissism was first um, coined by Kernberg, I believe, in his 1970 paper, Factors in Psychoanalytic Treatment of Narcissistic Personalities, from um, conceived of the term malignant narcissism. Um, and Daniel Shaw, I think, preferred describing, the, again, the same social dynamics, preferred to use the term traumatizing narcissism because he found the word malignant too rife with judgment. And while I understand that, I ended up deciding to use the term malignant narcissism not as an act of judgment or, or disapproval, but rather because I think malignant captures the devastation and the destruction that these personalities can create when they're in positions of leadership. So there's generally a sense that people like Hitler and Stalin and Pol Pot and Mao could all be defined as malignant narcissists. These are people who've created utter devastation in the human landscape in the 20th century. But recorded history is full of examples. I think of our willingness to follow pathological leaders and and enact and enact some of the violence and some of the damage that they asked us to. It's really kind of the story of recorded history in many ways, and it's quite it's quite tragic. I I agree with you. It does seem to be part of the story in recent times and in times gone by. Uh, I, I'd like to uh, talk a little bit, just briefly. Actually, Karen, about... can I, sorry, can I just interrupt? I just want to add one more point. And I know this is okay. something we both have strong feelings about. Well, I mean, I think there's, what's concerning is that um, there is increasing evidence that we're moving away from empowering people's voice through democracy towards autocratic systems. So in the last 15 years, we moved from a situation in which 
roughly three people in the world are living in free societies to a situation in which it's closer to one, three out of five versus one out of five. So it's scary. And it's it's a hugely pressing issue for us if we're going to deal with some of the very, very challenging social issues that we have to that we have to face. Well, thank you for adding that. As you know, that's something that's near and dear to my heart because I have yes. written about uh, the fear about losing our democracy, which is very scary. I, so I definitely agree with that. So I'm going to go back to your book now. Okay, um, sorry. Uh, no, no problem. Um, and my reaction to your book is I think I told you while I was reading, it was difficult to read. I found parts of it to be very moving, but it was jarring at the same time. I was outraged when reading some parts and tearful when reading other parts of it. I'm not sure this was intended or whether the topic just lends itself to the, a range of emotions or maybe both. Can you say a little bit about the reaction I had and whether or not it is what you expected from readers? When you when you um, gave me a sense you might ask a question like that, it um, I was confronted in an unexpected way with um, in an unexpected way with the way that I had processed some of that difficult material. When I wrote about what my experience was like. I don't, I kind of did so unselfconsciously. I didn't have a real sense of just how poignant the material was going to be for other people. So as I heard from you and as I heard from members of friends, many of whom are psychologists or psychoanalysts, that it was a tough book to get through, I was a little surprised. And I realized that that was probably a reflection of the difficulty that I still have appreciating my importance to other people and appreciating my place in the human community. I'm, I'm still not convinced, I suppose, that I can have a real impact on other people and an impact that won't be discounted. Again, part of the kind of experience I had growing up. So the question brought that realization into, um, into focus. I'm glad that the material was meaningful. Oh, oh very meaningful. So let me... Um talk about or ask a question about your father and and your mother, but uh, I'll start with your mother. While your father played a major role in your life and in the book, your mother was also a participant in your story of abuse and neglect. Could you say a bit about her role in your upbringing? Yeah, it was confusing. And in, and in some ways, it's harder for me to articulate her impact than it is for me to articulate my dad's impact. Um, she was, on the one hand, a kind of savior who could use her voice to intervene and, counter, and, and counteract my dad's voice. And that was, I think, at times literally quite life-saving to understand that there was another perspective, another way of looking at things, and that you could voice it and you could feel it. So that made quite a bit of difference. But she was also terribly damaged. So she was a very imperfect savior. She was struggling to save herself. And as I note in the book, you could see that she was losing her battle. 
And that was really scary because I was losing, I was losing her and I was also losing the one person who could sort of protect me from my father. And, and that loss became manifest actually as the, as the marriage, which was very chaotic, was breaking down. And she would disappear for six months at a time. And I would be left to deal with, with him. Part of me understood. Part of me felt abandoned. Part of me didn't want to be angry with her. In case she came back, I didn't want to end up pushing her away. And then there was another part of me, other, and that was a part of her that could be quite sadistic herself. So it was, it was a real moment. It was, it was a lot to sort through, to navigate your way through and make sense of. So, I mean, there's a great deal I've understood, I think, but she remains, she remains a little harder to access, I think, than my dad does. Well, I'm glad I asked the question because I think that it um, helps me understand in a different way or a new way how you have the capacity for empathy. It must, it must have been through an identification with her because it sounds like she did have that capacity to some extent anyway. I, no, I think that's right. I think she did. I mean, I absolutely think she did. And I think at times when she was deeply distressed, with the way that he was treating me, it meant that I could extend some of that empathy to myself. And it felt good. It felt good to have someone who was empathic. Um, you know, as I said earlier, it, it really felt quite life-saving. And then there was a part of me that felt, I'd like to be able to do that too. That's a very powerful thing to be able to do. She was, interestingly, she was, uh, I mean, she couldn't, really she couldn't really make sense out of her world but she loved the arts and she was an artist herself so and that was something my father tried to do um, but um i mean his paintings were very pedestrian his tastes in music were very pedestrian lawrence Walt, mitch mitch, mitch um, what was that guy's name with the bouncing ball that you may, may remember mitch miller or something like that anyway um she was she was she could get into classical music. She was into literature a bit. And she was very much interested in finding a way to express the inner self through the art that she created. So yeah, very important. And yes, very much an identification with those parts of me. Well, moving to your father, it's hard to know what question is most important about him, since the book to a large extent is about him. What can you say to our listeners that will capture the essence of your relationship with him? I know we could be here for a very long time. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Read I, I, answer that. Wow, how do I how do I praise you this? Um, um, my first response is probably the most defining feature of my relationship with him was fear, fear and shame. Very very profound aspects um, of my relationship with him. He also insisted that he be idealized and he imposed that idealization on one on almost a daily basis. You were reminded what extraordinary accomplishments he'd been able to realize. And in fact, given the circumstances that he faced, his accomplishments were really quite imposing, but he was essentially a broken guy. And I think that was in the end, that's what I felt about both of my parents, that 
they were both terribly broken. And a part of me was was enraged by the way they treated me. And another part of me was um, tormented uh, with loss and sadness. But I couldn't, you know, I couldn't, I couldn't fully spell that out, out for myself. But it was, it was very much, it was very much something I felt. Yeah. Well, I think fear had to have been a, a major, major part of it. Uh, there's anywhere around that. Let, let me move to my next question. Um, this is this is difficult, but I think it would be remiss of me if I didn't bring up the cruelty you were subjected to as a child. You had to absorb intense sadism for many years. One example relates to the way your father treated animals. Eventually, you identified with part of this behavior because that was the world you knew. Is there anything you would like to say about these experiences and how they might have affected you as a child and then later as an adult? Um, it's, gosh, there's a lot. I mean, I guess there's a lot to say about that. Growing up with my father, you started to experience a kind of withering of spirit. You start to feel increasingly dead inside and as a result you feel kind of counterfeit as a person you don't feel like there's any center or any core the deadness and the emptiness is really quite frightening you don't have anything as Kernberg would say you don't have any good objects to fill yourself with my mother was a very ambivalent and dangerous good object so there were there were teachers who were very caring, but essentially you're enduring a kind of withering and, and, a, and a kind of, as time goes on, um, an increasingly dark, ugly landscape inside. Cruelty then becomes a siren call. It's a way to feel something. It's a, it's a way to engage with the world. It's a way to feel alive. Um, but as you go down that dark path, it becomes really quite terrifying and you become frightened, certainly as I enacted cruelty towards animals, that I wasn't able to feel anything or seemingly wasn't able to feel anything. So you're carrying this awful secret that you don't want anybody else to see. You don't want to see particularly yourself and you can't find any way out of it. And you don't have any idea how relationships work and what it is that people get from another, except a lot of ugly devastating experiences. Um, I'm not sure how I found my way out. I mean, I think one thing that helped was that I kept telling myself that all of this stuff had to make sense, that there had to be a way to put this stuff together. Uh, it was kind of an act of faith, and I suppose it was aided and abetted by my parents' insistence that I act as their therapist from a very young age. So I was kind of pushed into that sort of sciencey orientation. And and I I kept working with it. That was a, an article of faith that I kept returning to. There are reasons why this is happening. You have to understand what's happening. Be patient. There'll be a way to there'll be a way of, of piecing all of this together. And and in fact I think there there is a way of piecing at least some of it together to a meaningful extent. But the fallout is, and I don't think I've talked to you about this. I remember they talked about this in the book. I certainly see with my patients who've been through really brutal early trauma. You're left with a core of rage that's really scary, that you're afraid is going to escape and express itself. 
and that could potentially lead you to do something really hurtful or harmful to the people you care about. And it's rage, which is based, as I now see, on a sense that you weren't loved. And it's it's hard to live with. It's a discipline, literally, for me every day to try to contain it and manage it. I can't imagine how it would be any other way or how it could be with all of the things that you had to endure. Uh, shif- shifting slightly to another topic, the one that is related. After all the feelings you experienced, what led you to come to see malignant narcissism as a defense against love? What well, was it was actually part of the process that I was, you know, that I was just describing. I kept trying to figure out what the hell was going on. Trying to trying to find some order in the disorder and the chaos that that was around me and that was inside me. At a certain point, I I increasingly began to notice that my father couldn't tolerate love or decency. He said he wanted other people to admire him and to idolize him. That was clear, but he didn't seem to be able to tolerate vulnerability, openness, tenderness, warmth, playfulness, or any measure of constructive interdependence. So when I started to notice that stuff, um, that really that really helped, helped open new vistas for myself. Um, then it occurred to me, so there must be a reason why he backs away when he's confronted with genuinely decent people. Well, there must be a reason why this guy can't doesn't seem to be able to tolerate love. Once I had the autobiographies, and of course I've been subject to those stories over the years, I could really start to put this stuff together. And it, it was, I was in my mid-40s when I really began to understand it. And once you understand it, then of course when you spend time with, when I spent time with him, you could watch this stuff playing itself out almost continuously. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Uh, since you brought up, uh, you mentioned um, autobiographies, his autobiographies. Could you briefly uh, say a few words about about them? Um, I'm not sure what I would say. Um, I'm grateful to him for providing the stories. Um, I'd actually, I asked for the stories because he told them repetitively and compulsively. I didn't want to lose them. And I was also facing a visit with him. Visits which usually break down within four or five hours and become really quite awful. So I thought, well, I mean, I certainly know that he likes to talk about himself. And it's important for him to immerse himself in his pain. It's dangerous to go there with him, of course, but it's something that he seems to need to do. So I built the visit around around those discussions. And he it was probably one of the best visits we've ever had. He produced two, no, I guess it was five 90-minute tapes and then replicated the autobiography again. It was a trauma story and he needed to tell it. Um, his take on the story is interesting. There's no awareness, as one of my, as one of my uh, psychologist friends pointed out, of the damage that he created for the people around him. 
and there's no real awareness of the real of, of the kind of impact that his experience had had upon him. I mean, there's certainly an aggrieved, angry posture uh, in in the autobiographies, and an attempt to in an attempt to take the edge off of some of that rage. But it's not; they're not insightful, and and at points they're um, they're self congratulatory and clearly attempts to um, gild the lily. It just occurred to me. I mean, well. Something that I definitely know and have for many, many, many years. That is, a life without insight is, um, well, it's very unfortunate, to say the very least. It was catastrophic for this guy. I mean, that's right. But, you know, as I talk about the book, looking at the self is absolutely terrifying. I mean, it threatens all of the core defenses that these people employ. Uh, and it's something that my father uh, assiduously avoided. And if you presented him with insight, um, he would retreat to the aggrieved, wounded, um, violated child. Yeah, I, I can only imagine how difficult that was. Let me ask you about all of the experience that you've had with this. So your personal experiences and your lifelong study of the type of narcissism you described, based on all of that, do you think you personally delineated a new etiology about malignant narcissism? And if so, can you elaborate about your thoughts for our listeners so they can think about your insights? Sure. Um, Well, I think that when I was answering your first question, I think what I found particularly lacking and what I could feel other clinicians struggling with was the whole question of etiology. I mean, some writers would say it's been done to death, but I don't think it has been. I don't think there are there's a clear, intimate, deep look at what happens to people who become malignant narcissists. I don't think we have a lot of opportunity to do that because these people don't avail themselves of treatment and because they are so profoundly mistrusting and because they can't yield their grandiosity and and allow themselves to assume um, to participate in a constructive interdependence. So I I suppose that's the value that I I saw in my own experience. I could could see what what had happened to him or I thought I could. Um, if that doesn't sound too arrogant, and I could see what was happening in myself. And what was happening to my interior very closely paralleled what was happening to his interior. When I saw the autobiographies, I I could recognize that he had been subject to um, profound, devastating early parentification and an extraordinary degree of personal exploitation without receiving much sustenance in return, other than the grandiosity which his mother offered him. So that that pattern began to make sense. It also began, it also, sorry, my head's going in a couple different directions. I I could also see what was happening to me. I could see that my own inner deadness, my increasing investment in sadism, um, the rage that was accumulating inside, the emptiness that I was experiencing which I could feel made me susceptible to embrace any identification, 
just so I could fill myself with something, certainly set the stage for me to move towards a version of malignant narcissism had I not been able to find a way a way out for myself. I could also see as I looked at as I looked at one of the core drivers of identification in these circumstances, and that is the personal withering, the emptiness, the spiritual deadness and, and emptiness that one endures. Um, if you're in a context in which the malignant narcissist is putting pressure on you to identify with their life position, your choice is either identification or um, destruction of your soul, not to make too dramatic a point of it. Um, some of the literature talks about soul murder um, as one endures the uh, attack on subjectivity that narcissism occasions. Uh, Daniel Shaw talks about that in his book very beautifully. So in those circumstances, if my father had, if my mother hadn't been there to speak up and create an alternate voice and an alternate experience for me, and if my father had had put pressure on me to become what he was, I think it would have been very hard to resist. So I can see someone, for instance, like Donald Trump, facing that kind of conundrum. Either identify or die. And so you you identify and you would you adopt a malignant narcissistic life posture. Then interestingly, um, as um, as you and I are working on the Putin book, and as I'm and I'm I'm reading exhaustively as I know you are about Putin, I found the trauma model that I had started to create in my, as I was trying to make sense of malignant narcissism really, really helpful when I applied that model more broadly. I could get a better sense of what happened to him. So it wasn't specifically about um, parentification or about devastation of the self that could result in um, a very damaged self that was incapable of empathy. I could see it was about dealing more broadly, as I said, with the terrible threat that devastating trauma could create for someone. And I think he experienced devastating trauma in the courtyard. And it, it was interesting as I read, I don't know if he had this experience, but as I read what some of the other some of the authors had to say about that courtyard, the courtyard experience, I found myself thinking, you guys really can't get inside this experience. You can't really appreciate just how horrifying and just how terrifying it would be day by day to deal with the threat that a small, small in stature kid would have to contend with as he faced the chaos and the threat that he was being presented. Um, one of the writers even suggested that maybe uh, that maybe Putin was um, um, exaggerating or dramatizing his hooliganism. And I thought, no, um, what he's not telling you is just how terrified he was and how helpless he felt and how overwhelmed he felt. That would be something he can't talk about because it would breach his grandiosity and his omnipotence, and that's what that's what holds this guy together. So the trauma model really started to help. I realized, okay, so if we approach the origins of malignant narcissism from the vantage point of trauma, it becomes a lot easier to anticipate what's happening in a given situation. Well, I think weaving that into the picture of Putin, uh, it is another story, but I think it's important because intergenerational trauma, I mean, we know what happens when things aren't dealt with. 
they don't go away. They just manifest differently in the next generation. Well, let me ask yeah. your... Sorry, I don't know whether you have to stop, but yes, I think that's a really important point. I mean, Russia and many other parts of the world had just been through an absolutely devastating series of traumas. First World War, Spanish flu, the Depression, Second World War. People were emotionally blunted and, um, and devastated. And I mean, as we subject humanity to those kinds of experiences, we're setting the stage, we're manufacturing malignant narcissistic personalities, and we're manufacturing people who will follow the malignant narcissistic leadership. Well, while on the, the topic of a world leader, um, uh, this next question I think fits in well. When it comes to malignant narcissism, do you think researchers and mental health professionals are paying significant attention? to the investigation of pathological leadership that will adequately advance our grasp on the dynamics that characterizes both leaders and their followers who become involved in this kind of connection, this sort of dynamic. And yeah, I mean I mean as you know, no, I don't I don't think we are. I know that Donald Trump has called a lot of attention to these issues. Um, and I think that's, I think it's been appropriate that people have expressed the measure of alarm that they have about his leadership. And I think it's been appropriate that, um, sorry, I have to talk over my dog. I think it's been appropriate that um, we're now beginning to look at this subject more closely. But I don't think we've begun to pay it the kind of attention that we need to. I mean, I, I, I mean, I think that's why you and I are doing what we're doing and why some of the other, some of our other colleagues are doing the same thing because we, we feel there's real urgency in dealing with this, with the problem of pathological leadership. But pathological leadership essentially silos people around the world so that instead of people being able to collaborate and work on human problems and see one another as part of a larger human family, they're acting in self-interested ways uh, and trying to manage some of the challenges that we have, or ignoring some of the challenges that we have, that we have, and in the process, we're wasting critical time that we need in order to ensure our own survival and the survival survival of our children. When you had you made a comment during one of our conversations that you thought maybe if we started in 1820, taking a look at some of this stuff, it would have been enough time, and I thought. You know that's only that's only partially facetious. We 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 just haven't focused on this material the way that we need to, and given it the attention that we need to give it, it's absolutely critical for us to understand if we're going to survive as a species. Well, um, well, you know I agree with that. I'm going to shift to uh, something about your book cover. So I'm switching to a, a, this is a later sure. question. It's very interesting. I was just looking at it and, and wondering how I would describe it. I'm not sure that I could do it justice. And you know much more about it. But to me, it looks like a man's face coming through many, many shards of what looks like glass. Uh, 
at any rate, I'm sure a lot of thought went into choosing the cover. Uh, from my experience, well, why don't we just start with that, this cover, then I have a follow-up question. Oh, okay, sure. Yeah. Um, well, the, the cover that I got wasn't quite the cover that I wanted, but there, there would have been copyright issues. This cover, I thought, was a good compromise. It captures it captures Kernberg's idea that the malignant narcissistic personality is very rigidly constructed. Um, Kernberg would argue that it's essentially um, a defense against borderline uh, disintegration. And I think it is. I agree with him. So the cover tries to capture the, the contrast between a very strong, forceful-looking face and the disintegration that's unfolding kind of continuously as this personality makes an effort to hold itself together. The image that I really wanted was, um, I mean, it's not the kind of image you'd put, you would put on, a, on an academic book, but it was a, it's a piece of tattoo art, a kind of swirling smoke skull that inclines itself forward with a dark rose uh, at the front of it. Um, very much for me, a metaphor for what the malignant narcissist has to do, hide his damaged humanity and his personal initiation at the same time that he's trying to advance, um, he, that he's trying to advance um, the gift that he that he would call others' attention to. Well, you answered the second part of my question. Um, just I've been involved in uh, my own decisions about book covers, and sometimes it's not easy because you might like one better than the other, but for for a, a multitude of reasons, you choose maybe second second choice. So I just thought it was interesting and thought it would be interesting to ask you what your perfect book cover would have been like. And I think maybe you just answered that. <laughs> yeah, I like the dark rose on the top of the skull because that, that is the that is the transaction that the malignant narcissist is trying to undertake. Don't look at my damaged humanity. I'm the guy who can solve your problems. Look at that. Nobody else can do it. Just me. Absolutely. I, I'm the one. Yeah. Okay, another uh, gear shift here. Uh, I was thinking about the Goldwater rule recently. I think about it quite frequently as I write, and how it affects psychiatrists versus psychologists and psychoanalysts uh, as it relates to labeling a political candidate uh, or a political candidate. So as you think about labeling a political candidate as a malignant narcissist, what are your thoughts about that? Do you think that would be something that you could do or you'd be hesitant to do? Um, it's something, it, it is something that I'm, that I'm hesitant to do. But when I consider what we're up against and when I consider the risks that we're facing and when I can consider the magnitude of human suffering that these personalities can occasion, literally millions of deaths and millions more fractured lives, it feels like we have a duty to win, that we have a duty at least to start a conversation and to say what we think we're beginning to understand. Um, um, you and I are writing a book about Putin as are a number of other people that we've asked to contribute. I'm very much aware that Putin's 
that Putin's a real person and that the kind of struggle that he was exposed to um, subjected him, at least from my vantage point, to unbearable trauma that distorted, significantly distorted the person that he became. I think there were a lot of people in Russia like that, by the way, and a lot of people in other venues around the world who were like that. But unfortunately, he's accrued a tremendous amount of power for himself and is a position of is in a position of doing great harm and enacting great harm in the future. Um, I think we have to say something. Um, it's a tough decision. I mean, as you know, the Goldwater Rule is a, is really a, a fraternal body regulation as opposed to a college regulation. So psychiatry is asked by the fraternal organization not to violate the Goldwater Rule. But there's no... There's no regulation within psychiatry's college structure that says you can't do this. And of course, there is not in, in psychology's regulatory structure, which prevents us from doing this. But I think we have to be very thoughtful about it. And it's, it's, a, it's a decision that I agonized over. I think when we, when we do carry out such an analysis, we have to make it clear what kind of tools we used and have to make it clear how we piece together the formulation that we that we did. I'm still I'm still a bit uneasy, but on balance, I think it's necessary. Yeah, yeah, I I agree. I I wonder if you might think which I but I think other people have said this. I certainly have thought it that it's it's outdated in terms of what was happening when people came up with the Goldwater Rule versus what the world is like today. Yeah, I think it's outdated as well. I mean, I think that's right. And we've, yeah, I mean, that's right. We've seen perversion of psychiatry and psychology in, in the Soviet Union being turned as a weapon of oppression towards the governed. Um, I don't, I think it's particularly important that we not allow ourselves to be Silence. Maybe that's a reflection of my response to my own dynamics. But I, I think we have a responsibility to start the conversations and to call attention to this stuff. And in that sense, yes, I think it's I I think it's outdated. I think our duty, our duty to warn takes precedence over any principles that the Goldwater Rule um, establishes for us, voluntary or otherwise. Well, thank you very much. Richard, have, this has been very, very insightful. I, I think listeners will find it to be a very um, important and maybe challenging, but very significant interview. Um, with that said, I wonder if there's anything else you'd like to add about your very well-researched book on malignant narcissism. Thank you. Uh, no, I think that, I think we I, actually we covered most of the important things. That, that I would say. So thank you, Karen. Yeah, that was a real pleasure. Well, you're very welcome. And I look forward to talking you know, more about this topic as time goes by, because the leadership that we have, not only here, but around the world, is that's not going to change overnight, for sure. Hopefully it will change at some point, but not quickly. But no, not quickly. Yeah. yeah. And you do a wonderful job of documenting what that topography looks like. And it's a scary, it's a scary yeah. landscape. Okay, to be continued at some point. Right. Okay. After you Thank you.